Pop Health Podcast is supported by 24-Hour Home Care. All episodes of Pop Health Podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pophealthpodcast.com. I had read about my patient and I was very frightened. So I remember that day I called into school and I I hid away to my girlfriend's house and kind of hung with her in, in her bedroom that day. And the next day went in and talked to my professor, and my professor said, Mary, all the things that are really causing you a bit of distress is what is going to make you a wonderful nurse, how much you care and worry about your patients. So she really guided me. If it wasn't for her, and she was working on her master's, a a young nurse educator, I really appreciated the mentorship from her. everyone and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, co-host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mary Noli Pilkington, System Director of Care Coordination and Social Work for UCLA Health. I've known Mary for a few years now, but really never knew her full journey. And in today's episode, Mary discusses her journey, which started with actually not even showing up to nursing school one day out of fear, to being the system director for one of the largest and most prestigious healthcare systems in the world. We hope you enjoy today's show where you learn about Mary's journey, as well as her team of nearly 200 social workers and case managers and how they manage a very diverse patient population in Southern California. Feel free to listen to more episodes on pophealthpodcast.com or download them on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. Mary, tell us something about yourself that might surprise the audience, maybe a fun fact outside of the workplace. Oh, my gosh, Gavin. I think the the thing that comes to mind, a fun fact, and actually it's out of the workplace and in the workplace, is when I was thinking about career choices, I wasn't really sure whether nursing was going to be my career choice. I know growing up that I'd really love to care for my family. And if anybody was sick, I was the first person going into that room. But I wasn't sure whether I could actually do those injections and draw blood and things of those nature. So it took me a while to to settle into nursing. Okay. Now, where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island in New York. Oh, I never noticed it. I've known you for a few years now. I've never noticed the accent. Gavin, I've worked on that. So when I moved to California and started to talk to people in the California state, they said, oh, you're from New York. So I thought, oh, I better work on that accent. (laughs) So sometimes when I'm tired, you'll hear it. Okay, cool. So you grew up in New York. Uh, You mentioned, uh, you know, we weren't sure you'd be in nursing. Well, tell us about your development and heading toward including nursing school. So during high school, I knew that I loved the math and sciences, so heavily taking all the science and math that I could. And I thought, well, what can you do with math and science? Well, there's engineering. Um, I could have gone to medical school or perhaps nursing school. And when I thought about 
what I wanted to do in the future, perhaps having a family, living in the city or in the country, I thought nursing school really aligned with, with that part of myself as well. So I applied to a few nursing schools, and there was a really wonderful program on Long Island, Nassau Community College, which accepted um, high school students only by lottery. So I was the only individual in my high school who, who was accepted into the program via lottery. So when I talked to my guidance counselor, he said, you know, Mary, I think this is the program for you. You'll be in the hospital by week two, and you'll really be able to figure out whether this is the right professional choice for you. So I went ahead and enrolled in Nassau Community College, and I just had the most really wonderful educational experience there. And when you... Sorry to cut you off. No, so okay. when you started, was it wonderful? Like, was it just super easy transition or? No, it, you know, it was a very stringent program, very strong clinically. Our professors were very strict. Um, and at one time, I wasn't quite sure I had, we would get our patient, the information regarding our patients the night before we were due to be in the hospital. And okay. I had read about my patient and I was very frightened. So I remember that day I called into school and I, I, I hid away to my girlfriend's house and kind of hung with her in, in, in her bedroom that day. And the next day went in and talked to my professor and my professor said, Mary, all the things that are really causing you a bit of distress is what is going to make you a wonderful nurse, how much you care and, and worry about your patients. So she really guided me. If it wasn't for her and she was, Working on her master's, a, a young edu nurse educator, I really appreciated the mentorship from her. I was worried, too, about the clinical presentation of that patient. That particular patient had a new colostomy, and okay. so I was very worried to provide that care. And when I met with her, she said, you know, Mary, you may go through your whole nursing career and you may never even need to pay, care for a patient with a colostomy. And I said, okay, that's that really sounds good to me. So right. I went through the program, and my very first nursing um, job was in a cardiac step-down unit. Okay. And so I was in academic medicine at that time in a hospital called North Shore on Long Island. And it was many, many, many years till I was working in the home health industry before I actually had a patient who had a colostomy. And I was out, I was on call one evening and got a call from a gentleman that said, I really need some assistance with my wife. So I hopped in my Honda Accord and I drove over to their home. And in the back bedroom was this wonderful couple. Um, they were probably in their early 70s. Um, the patient was laying across their bed in their bedroom. She did not have any clothes on, and she had the most adorable pink curlers in her <laughs> hair that I had had as a child. And there was uh, this brand new colostomy, and her husband, who had been working to put on the colostomy bag, had glued all of his fingers together. Nice. And so <laughs> I was really invited into this intimate, wonderful space. And at that moment, I thought, I'm really glad I went to nursing school. Really? As, yeah. <laughs> it was just a, a very um, special moment with that couple. Well, that's awesome. So yeah. home health, you were in home. Now, was that in the East Coast as well when you're doing home health or? No, that was that was in California. Okay. So that was in the early, well, from 2000 to 2005, around that time. Okay. I came to UCLA in 2005. Tell me how you ended up on the West Coast. Oh, so my mom passed away when I was 21. And so my sister, I have one older sister 
who lived in California. So I decided that, oh, I think I need to take a break and go out and spend time with my sister because I started to care for patients with a similar um, disease process as my mom. Okay. So I drove cross country. Wow. And Solo or? Dad joined me at okay. that time. So my nice. dad and I jo- drove cross country. That was in oh, 1982. 1982, okay. And I arrived in California and I started to work for a registry. Um, so worked in California, making my own hours, staying with my sister. And then after that, I actually decided I was going to stay in California. So found a Monday through Friday position in the ambulatory setting. So okay. I worked in an internal medicine for a while, diabetic education, working um, with a dermatologist. So initially acute care yeah. in an academic medicine, then ambulatory care Okay, good in the clinic setting. And then... After that, I was um, able to stay home with my children for a period of time, which I'm very grateful for. Nice. And so stay-at-home mom? Stay-at-home mom yeah. till my daughter was about a year old and my son was four. And then at that time, what I did was I became a paramedical examiner for hmm. um, insurance companies. Okay. Where you actually go out into people's home and you do an assessment, you draw their blood, you do an electrocardiogram. For like life insurance. Life, exactly. So the initial Evaluation. Stages. Yeah, right. I remember doing those. By a yeah. paramedical examiner. So yeah. I grew that business actually till I had my own employees. Oh. So contractor. Yeah. Um, employees would make my schedules, take care of mailing all of the exams that I did. And I really grew that business so that there was a new paramedical um, company that asked me to come on board as their director of operations. Oh, okay. Cool. So that's when I kind of brought my business along to that company. So I was director of operations for uh, nationwide paramedical companies. I had examiners across the country, about 50. Um, in all the different states doing doing examinations. And then after that, I really decided that I wanted to return to actually delivering healthcare and then went into home health. So I really feel home health for several years and then case management at UCLA. Okay. So I really feel as though my professional trajectory has brought me to the job that I do today. There- all of the different things that I've done, I'm really able to see the different settings for our patients, from academic medicine to the ambulatory area, working in the insurance industry, which is a good deal of a part of case management. Absolutely. And then home health, and then back to academic medicine. So oh, That's a good background. It helps me understand why you are in the role you are today. Uh, before you jump into to kind of what you do here at UCLA, can you tell the audience uh, very briefly about UCLA Health System? And, and your team after you talk about UCLA. Gavin, it's going to be hard for me to be brief <laughs> okay. because, <laughs> about UCLA because it's something that still to this day just excites me. So, so to share with the audience about UCLA Health, I'm going to take uh, a little time to share if those people listening, just to, uh, people usually know UCLA Health, but just what is the heart of UCLA? Sure. And I would say that we are built for miracles. We are an academic center um, and able really to provide our patients the latest technologies, whether it's access to life-saving treatment, which we have some new treatments that we've started this year, actually 2018, which is so exciting that patients are now 
in full remission for things like lymphoma and leukemia. That's our CAR T cells that we're doing FDA approved in February yeah. of 2018. Awesome. Leading edge clinical trials in the neurosciences, oh. women's health, and UCLA just has a strong commitment to patient care. Our mission is to deliver leading edge patient care, research, and education. And our vision is to heal humankind one patient at a time by improving health, alleviating suffering, and delivering acts of kindness. And I, I can say that this is truly the heart of UCLA Health, whether it's in our hospital systems, our four hospital systems, whether we're seeing patients in our outlying hospitals that we have, um, where we have our physicians caring for our patients, whether it's in our clinic settings, whether it's in our classrooms where our physicians and our nurses are teaching the physicians and nurses of tomorrow, that this is really the heart of UCLA. In my day job, I have the opportunity to interact with UCLA pretty regularly. And um, I know Neil, our local director, who's uh, sitting in as well. And what's actually what's pretty funny, I love it, Mary. You are engaging Neil as part of this recording since he's present in the room with us. And I love that. That shows your care. Like that shows your inclusivity, I guess, of yeah. everybody in the room, which actually, it's pretty cool. And uh, something, I don't know, I'm going to keep this part in. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the Department of Patient Experience, I noticed uh, when there might be an issue with scheduling on surgeries and things like that, like they take care of the patients when they can and try to make it up to them. If they Absolutely. Can. And yeah. uh, that happens at every hospital. This is not unusual for any, you know, for things to happen. And I've seen it there. Also, one thing that I've witnessed about UCLA is when you have the opportunity to be generous, I've seen it mm. where it's not necessarily the expectation of a patient to receive something to help with a transition, for example. And I know you guys have certain willingness to do things above and beyond that I haven't seen with other hospitals. And I'm not going to get into the detail of that, um, but it's pretty neat. Well, I think if you if you listen to our vision and we, we're at the core of our vision and the core of the work that we do is we truly want to improve health. And if someone is anxious about anything, whether that be, oh my goodness, I was, I, I was really counting on going to surgery at 10 o'clock and now it's one o'clock, that anxiety needs to be reduced so that we can really improve the health and have the best outcome for that patient. So we, we will work in any way that we can to ensure that our patients have the best outcomes because what we really want them doing is returning home to their lives and saying, okay, UCLA was a part of my history, but I don't need them to be a part of my history anymore except to help me maintain my health. Yeah. So we really want to fade away and that patient to really embrace well-being and health. And the only way we can, we can have the best outcomes for our patients is to take away all those worries and concerns and have someone to truly listen when things are not going as the patient had expected. Yeah. Not even that they're not going well, that they're just not going as expected. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. So... UCLA Health System is a very large health system. Can you tell us about your team that you help lead? I'm really excited to talk about that because the, the team, my current position, I stepped into 
a little over a year as interim and now formally in July. So still, I brings a big smile when I say my team. Yeah. And so I have a direct team of nine managers, and each of the managers has anywhere from 30 to 40 patients that, uh, excuse me, staff that are reporting to them. So we have anywhere from 190 to 200 staff. Woo! That is a big team. And sorry, I just want to say for all the case managers or and or directors out there, feel free to email me. I'll give someone a prize. I don't know what it would be. But if you have a team that's larger than that and you work in an acute care medical center, that's pretty amazing, Mary. Probably one of the largest I've heard of. Well, it's it shows UCLA's commitment to care coordination and really assuring that we can support our patients while they're in the hospital setting. We are a Three camp, well, two campuses at at the Westwood campus. We have two hospitals. We have Mattel's Children and Ronald Reagan, and then we have our Santa Monica campus. And our staff compri- is comprised of clinical case managers who are registered nurses, clinical social workers who are masters prepared social workers, and we also have two nurse practitioners out in skilled nursing facilities where we have some of our most vulnerable patients. And we are covering our emergency rooms with 24-hour coverage, and we're also supporting some of the ambulatory patients in transplant and pediatrics. Wow. So we really cover a broad area, and we have analysts, administrative staff, um, case management assistants. So it's really a variety of staff that are, are helping the mission of our department and hospital. Very cool. Now, I know... Also, as part of that structure of your team, besides 24-7 the ED, you also have bridge positions. Can you tell us a little bit about how the bridge role in case management, uh, why that's a benefit to the team? Because I know not all hospitals have that capability or have that staffing. Of course, yeah. yeah. What we were noticing, even when we were putting together interdisciplinary rounds in the afternoon, we were having those rounds at both campuses around 1 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And we were really hoping during those rounds to be preparing our patients for discharge for the next day. But invariably, when we met with our physicians and other staff, they would say, you know, the patient could go home today. Testing is all back. We're good to go. And we were finding that our staff really wanted to help that patient to discharge or transfer for the hospital. And they were they were staying way past their 4.30 hour. They were here 4.30 536 o'clock, really helping their patients and families to transfer from the hospital. We thought we really need to support our staff to get home on time, to really come back refreshed the next day. So we added additional staffing. So we have staggered a swing shift, which is both for our case managers and social workers. We have one case manager beginning at 2 p.m. and working until 10 and we have an earlier swing shift starting at noon and leaving at 8 so that the case managers can hand off those cases for patients who will discharge that same day. Same for social work. Yeah. Um, we have the same shift hours. In the emergency room, it's a little different. There's swing shift for case management, and those particular nurses are doing more utilization review. Okay, less discharging. Less discharging, less coordinating and transferring patients to other hospitals or repatriating and such. They're actually applying a criteria to make sure patients are meeting criteria for admission to the hospital. But still supporting that step when the volume increases in the emergency room. Okay, great. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about uh, Mary's role here in UCLA's care coordination. But for now, we'll take a quick break, 
and then we'll jump right back into the conversation. Pop Health Podcast is supported by 24-Hour Home Care. All episodes of Pop Health Podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and pophealthpodcast.com. Well, thanks, everybody. We're now back from the break. Mary, can you tell us maybe briefly about uh, a challenge you've experienced, whether as a case manager Mm -hmm. um, or as a director of a team? And then after that, I'd like to hear maybe about a success story. So, Gavin, I think that the challenge that I'm going to share with you is actually going to equal the success. So I think very often the challenges that we're faced with really leads to our successes. Yeah. And at least that has been my experience. And I think as a new case manager and then manager and now director, really supporting our most vulnerable populations have been some of our biggest challenges. Right. So really ensuring, um, I'm going to speak primarily, and I know we're going to talk about this a little later in the podcast, our homeless population. Right. So one of the largest challenges we were faced probably about 12 years ago was how we were going to um, discharge homeless individuals who needed continued um, care that could be provided at a skilled nursing facility safely um, and then out into the community. And so we worked with some skilled nursing facilities and National Health Foundation recuperative care to really build a pathway for those homeless patients that need inpatient hospitalization and then require some skilled nursing facility placement and then need to go out to a recuperative care center. They were our largest, uh, I would say, one of our biggest challenges many years ago. But it took really partnering with um, skilled nursing facilities and recuperative care center and coming to the table and discussing how we could best serve our patients. And when things didn't go as planned, coming back to the table again and really figuring out what what didn't go as planned, how we can how can we do that better next time? So that really was one of our greatest challenges, but also one of our greatest successes. And I think what we learned is that we just really needed to be involved in coordinating the care from the inpatient setting all the way through um, to the recuperative care center. So we stayed engaged even when our patient was at the skilled nursing facility. Awesome. And I know I've, a, I've visited and toured one of these recuperative care centers that you're alluding to. And I know a lot of our audience may not know what this recuperative care center is. So maybe in like a 30 second, 60 second mm-hmm. explanation, can you kind of share what is recuperative care and maybe even how it's funded? So Recuperative Care Center is exactly what it sounds like. It's a place where our patients who are historically homeless, perhaps they're living um, on the streets, can go and recuperate after a hospitalization. So there have been some old hotels that have been renovated by National Health Foundation, um, some buildings renovated to actually house homeless individuals. And it's funded through Benefactor. There's actually a sharing of support through grant and benefactors through National Health Foundation. And then the hospitals also share the cost for that patient going to recuperative care. And it's multiple. So it's a daily rate. Yeah, and it's not just UCLA uh, sending their patients there, but there's some others that might also benefit from that resource, right? Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. many The whole hospital system in Southern California, we all send our patients to recuperative care awesome. centers. Yeah. Nice. And if you have the opportunity, folks out there, if you are in Southern California or the Los Angeles area, um, I don't think they give formal tours, but if you're in the healthcare 
profession and your patients could potentially benefit, um, I'm sure give them a call. If you Google a recuperative care or National Health, Nas- National Health Foundation, right? They've just opened a new recuperative care center at Pico Union. They have 61 beds and they're clinical social workers, um, support staff there. It is radical hospitality is what they're sharing with us. Wow. They want their residents, their guests to experience radical hospitality because we know that that homelessness brings with it trauma for those individuals. So as that homeless patient is encountered in recuperative care center, they just want them to feel that warmth of a home setting so yeah. that that patient will stay through the whole course of therapy. Great. Recuperative care center. So speaking of radical, I know for you, this probably wasn't too radical, but um, a new Senate bill SB 1152 recently came into effect where it's, Ensuring hospitals are properly, I'll I'll keep it simple and let you explain it, Mm -hmm. uh, properly discharging or transitioning the homeless population. So can you tell us how SB 1152, uh, maybe just in a nutshell, has affected you and your team here at UCLA and and your process? So we have historically had discharge of homeless in our policies. We've had a policy within care coordination and UCLA's discharge policy additionally spoke to specifically discharging homeless patients. So it was not really new for us. Senate Bill 1152 requires that hospitals address homelessness inside of their discharge policy. So that, that we, we had an effect already. Um, however, it was really documenting the work that we were, we were already doing for our homeless patients that we really had to tweak our electronic medical record to ensure that we had that documentation in a standardized way. The emergency room also applies in Senate Bill 1152. We had had really um, standardized policies for patients who are in the inpatient setting, and now we're working with the emergency room to also incorporate that approach to homeless patients. Okay. The exciting thing with Senate Bill 1152 is that it really is going to standardize the way we care for our for our homeless patients and this vulnerable population. So one thing at UCLA that I've known for a while. Uh, we had the opportunity to have on our on pod, on the podcast uh, David Feinberg, who I believe brought the idea of rounding to UCLA initially, and I know you as well are involved in patient rounds, and we hear this term pretty regularly um, in healthcare. But I'm curious here at UCLA what that means to you. Uh, well, you're right that Dr. Feinberg brought that to UCLA, and it's actually with Amir Rubin at the okay. time. So Dr. Feinberg was our CEO, Amir Rubin is our, was our COO, and they brought in a way of engaging our patients, something called CI Care. Okay. And so we do training on CR, CI Care protocols with our nurses, our physicians, those pa- uh, individuals who are taking care of the patients from an environmental standpoint our patient transport, our valet workers. And what CI Care is, connecting with the patient, always introducing yourself to the patient, communicating with our patients and their families, asking what we can do for our patients and families, responding, and then exiting. And this is primarily around how we engage the patient in their hospital room. So 
Additionally, what the leadership team does, and this occurs one to two times a week, is we all get together at both Ronald Reagan and Santa Monica. We gather and we go out into the hospital and ambulatory clinics, and we talk not only to our patients, but to our staff about CR care. Okay. So engage the patients. How... How is your experience? How are things for you? But additionally, we stop and we talk to our staff. What does CI Care mean to you? How can we support you as an employee at UCLA? And we have found, then we all come back together after we round um, with the patients and staff and we share what's our opportunities? What are our patients saying? What could we do better? And what then what are we doing really well? Right. What are our patients sharing with us? Have they recognized and, and what's going really well for our staff? And what can we improve for our staff? And we just, it's so surprising of how people respond. We had one round where there was a patient waiting in PACU and the waiting time was long and they were just bored. Yeah. So somebody said, run up and get that patient an iPad and get some videos. And people were just running up to make sure that that, that patient who was bored. Yeah in PACU um, had some way to relieve their boredom. And that means running up with an iPad that someone may have in their office, but it's just really um, hearing from our patients consistently and and making improvements. Nice. Well, speaking of making improvements, I think everyone can agree that our government isn't perfect, nor any of us. Recently, um, uh, earlier this year, we had a government shutdown for 35 days. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, um, here at a government-funded institution, uh, if it impacted you guys at all, or if, or if everything was pretty much identical, business you know, as usual. Gavin, it was business as usual. Okay. We would not, the only place that I can say that I experienced any change was supporting some of my managers whose children actually worked in in other areas. One yeah. is a border patrol, and he has ah. a young daughter so she was a little worried about her son, so we talked about it and I was able to support her. But from an operational or caring for our patients, we didn't we it was business as usual, didn't experience okay. anything. Good yeah. to know. I know almost a million people uh, were affected, so great to know that you guys are business as usual. Yeah. A lot of times we've heard in the past that case managers sometimes don't get enough recognition. I've also heard that case managers bring in the money for the hospital. So I think there's probably somewhere in the middle, maybe case managers might be seen as unsung heroes or forgotten. I'm curious from your perspective, how you view the case management role in the hospital. I think it's critical. And I think that people are starting at UCLA to understand case management more and more. We're actually out orienting new nurses and orienting physicians and sharing about our practice. So people are understanding a little bit more of our practice. But I think the case manager is that hidden hero behind the door. They're often in their office doing a lot of office work, which is calling facilities, making sure the patient's going to the correct facilities. And to your point, it's calling that insurance company when the patient is in in the hospital to share with them, this is what's happening for your member. We we really need your member to continue hospitalization, and here's why. Uh So they're having that dialogue with the insurance company to really reduce any anxiety the patient may have around reimbursement for their hospital stay. So they're really, we're, we're taking care of that psychological, that emotional, that physical, and that financial 
portion for the patient. So next month when the patient's feeling well and the bills are all in order, um, everything is good to go. So we really get to take care of that whole patient and make sure that um, their whole stay is is cared for. Okay, yeah. great. So you just mentioned it might be a case manager might be calling a facility, uh, perhaps to see if that patient can transfer to like a skilled nursing facility, for example, correct? Exactly. So you, I know UCLA has uh, a narrowed network mm-hmm. of uh, preferred skilled nursing facilities. And how, if you mind me asking, a lot of the listeners are prob- are in post-acute position or they serve post-acute communities. They're employed by post-acute communities, facilities. And how did you guys, in a nutshell, choose which skilled nursing facilities met your vision of a preferred partner? Well, we did look at CMS. We looked at quality ratings, readmission ratings, and we looked at most of our providers approximate to the hospital. Okay. So we really looked at where are we sending our patients? How are those post-acute facilities performing? Yeah. And then we worked through our contracting department to really reach out to those post-acute facilities query them on certain aspects, and then made decisions using that information. And what's really exciting, Gavin, I think when you're looking at this, when you're looking at creating a narrowed network, you really want to create strong partnerships. And what we've been able to do at UCLA, and it's been, gosh, about oh, two and a half years now, we've developed a transition of care collaborative where we're bringing together our post-acute providers quarterly and really talking about metrics, readmission, how can we help support you, what are our expectations of our partners, and it's been a really wonderful working relationship. So that is our home health agencies, our caregiver services, HSAG joins us for that. Um, skilled Skill nursing, nursing um, infusion. infusion. Yeah, I, sorry, Mary. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I, I attended the. Uh, I've attended a couple of these, and uh, I, I do have to say, you do treat your partners as equals and as the term partner. I've, I said this on the podcast a couple of times. We've recorded almost ninety episodes, but I have to say this again. I, I like that you don't use the term vendor, but you use the term partner. Mm. I think I've been in the industry for almost. 20, oh man, yeah, 15 years, getting closer to 20. And 10 years ago, I heard the word vendor a lot, mm. but I'm starting to hear the word partner more and more. And I just want to uh, say thank you for treating those of us who work in the post-acute community as a partner versus a vendor. So that's all. Well, you're very welcome. Yeah. And I, when we talk to our partners, we really share that when we transition our patient to your skilled nursing facility back home with your home health agencies. You're an extension of UCLA. Right. You are really um, providing the care to our patients. We're entrusting you with our patients as our patients have entrusted themselves to us. So it is a partnership. It's a partnership where we're going to work together to improve the quality of care the patient receives, the experience that patient and their family receive. So thank you. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Um, I always like to use the term, I learned this early in my career, um, going from like subordinate vendor, where certain hospitals maybe back in the day would treat their home health agencies or skilled nursing, not saying you guys, as kind of the subordinate, do what I say, versus mm-hmm. now as like a partnership or an advisor even, which is pretty cool. So we talked a little bit about your network. A hot topic in case management for decades is steering. Steering your patients 
to specific providers, right? Mm -hmm. Medicare says, if it's a Medicare reimbursed service, Medicare says patient choice. Yep. So with outcomes available for federally reimbursed services like skilled nursing facilities and home health agencies, are you able to share on how you can educate patients and give them facts and data on certain facilities? What What are you allowed to do? So it's to- very interesting. We we really have worked a lot in this space, and we, we use a referral-based system called Aiden that is a platform within our electronic medical record. And we have really worked with our case managers to begin that initial conversation with patients and families. So we lead off by meeting with the patient or family if the patient's unable to really have this dialogue with us. And our first statement is, is there any, we, we believe that you need to go to a skilled nursing facility. Let's say skilled nursing is a level of care. Is there any skilled nursing facility that you would like us to refrain from referring you to? So that first question is from the patient or family. In other words, have you had an experience that you don't want to repeat or you know of an experience? So we, we really look to that for the patient to provide us that information. Okay. And then we ask them, uh, we're going to, um, would you want to go to a skilled nursing facility close to your home, close to UCLA, where UCLA has skilled nurse sniffists attending um, patients in that facility, geriatricians, and we wait for that information from our patient and family. Then we place this in our referral-based system, and it actually then links, can those facilities provide the clinical care for that patient? Yes. And then next, does the insurance authorize for that particular facility? And then we bring a list back to our patient. And what the beauty of this referral-based system is, those facilities are compared against one another on that provider list that we give the patient. That is on the CMS quality rating. That's on the readmission rate for all of those facilities that have have told us they can care for the patient. And then on actual patient feedback and experience. So they are compared against one another. So then the patient or family gets to decide of these providers, who will I choose? And we we do find that our patients choose the highest quality of those those accepting facilities. So you're in our network, but still the choice is within the patient and family. And the outcomes of those facilities actually help to drive patient choice. Yeah, definitely. And I love at your quarterly meetings that the leader or their leaders from all those organizations in the room together, and they see the results from one another from one another right. they see how their facility is doing with your patients that for the previous period of time and it's pretty cool it's pretty very transparent uh, for those of you for our listeners in california and arizona i think texas has a different qio but hsag health services advisory group provides a lot of data um, usually has its own data as well but mm-hmm. hsag also supports and really shows where a lot of the discharges go and um you can be pretty, if you're from a sniff that's doing well, it's very exciting. And if you're not doing well, it's hopefully an inspiration. Right. To- and we, we really encourage open dialogue so that those skilled nursing facilities who are doing well can be asked, will you share with us how do you, how do you reduce 
readmissions? How do you reduce infection in your skilled nursing facilities? So they're able to share best practice. I mean, all of us at the table want the best for our patients, right? So everyone's open. How did you do that? Simple as, well, we put, you know, hand wash outside of every room, similar to what we do in the hospital, simple things like that. How are you able to do that? What company did you utilize for that? Another facility actually greets the patients as they arrive. The administrator makes it a point of every patient coming in on an ambulance gurney is met by someone for the facility. That really improved their patient experience. So then the community can incorporate these best practices. So it's it's really been fun to be a part of and yeah. watch the dialogue and, and the collaboration among the post-acute providers. Yeah, it's great. And a lot of UCLA, so that room, uh, I mean, a lot of post-acute, but also a lot of UCLA leadership comes from various departments. Your, oh. your system is heavily invested in ensuring the success of that group. Yes, uh, we have physician representation from the hospital sitting from, setting from our population health group. We have representation from pharmacy, nursing, our executive leadership team. Um, yeah, it's, it's really important. As yeah. we transition our patients, we really want to make sure they're safe. Very good. Well, Mary, you've given uh, us and the audience a lot of information about your self growing up, which is pretty cool, but also about UCLA and, and your practice here as a leader in care coordination um, and social work. So Mary Noli Pilkington right. has been our guest. <laughs> My day job uh, has worked with us at UCLA for about 10 years, and so Mary's name has changed mm-hmm. uh, during that time. So sometimes in my notes... I've seen your name listed in other ways, so I'm still trying to get it, uh, saying it correctly. Uh, But Mary Noli Pilkington has been our guest, and really appreciate it, Mary. Thank you, Gavin. It's really been fun to be here with you today, and I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks so much. You're very welcome, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) If you would like to leave a review on today's show or on Pop Health Podcast, please do so on iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify as well. We're on all of those. You can always Google pophealthpodcast.com for more episodes, but really the best place to download would be either iTunes or pophealthpodcast.com. Thanks, everybody. Feel free to contact me at gavin at pophealthpodcast.com. Co-host Zach, who uh, is not here today, Zach or Zachary at pophealthpodcast.com. And again, thanks everyone for listening. Take care.